um, this is what the Bible says to us today. It's a really good word. I'm excited about it. Nehemiah 4.15 When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, the bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and, on, and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The men who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man... And his servant passed the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. That's what the Bible says to us. Um, if you're new or you've only come once or twice, we're going through the book of Nehemiah from the very first verse all the way to the very end. Um, we'll be done right at the end of the summer. But this is a great passage that I'm always excited to read and I'm actually excited to preach. Um, the redemptive theme in this, the theme for you and me that you're going to be seeing throughout the whole thing, is that whatever God calls you to build, whatever it might be, and He has, He's called you to build in several places. Wherever He has called you to build... He's going to call you to defend, because attack will be waiting for you. Attack will be there, right? Yet, God will fight for you. That's an interesting contrast, isn't it? But God will fight for you. You know, some of you know this about me. Most of you probably don't. It's, it's a little cheesy, but a few years ago, I used to do a lot of card tricks, right? Like the David Blaine, I'd be on the sidewalk and or on the college campus or whatever. And, or not Chris Angel, he's a little bit of a, of a dork. But I, I, like, I like David Blaine because he's real subtle and he'll just roll up to you on the sidewalk. Here, look at this, look at my hands. And he does this card trick and before you know it, he's got everyone's attention. And I loved what that did. And so I started to learn how to do it, not to make money or anything, but just to open up opportunities. And it worked. It's a little bit of a hobby for years. Um, one thing I studied in doing card tricks or illusion in any kind is the concept of the misdirect, right? A misdirect is a tool that illusionists employ to take your eyes off of where the action is happening, even for a second. That's all you need. It's just a second. Um, so uh, with cards, some, some illusionists, they have small hands. And so it's very easy to see what they're doing, and they have to really lean into misdirect, right? Um, some, they just don't know their tricks very well. Right? And so they rely on theatrics to get you to take your eyes off. Um, some tricks are very difficult. There's a couple that's taken me two years um, how to learn, how to do with one hand. And all I need is about half of a second. I just need your eyes to lift. So I could talk real loud, I could just I could shout, I could do something, and all of a sudden everyone's eyes, they look up to my eyes, they look to my face. And that's all it took. By the time they realize that they left looking at the cards and their eyes go back, the trick is already done. And it's all theatrics, right? This isn't some deep secret. I'm not going to get hate email or anything. Um, 
It could be me dropping something. It could be me remarking on somebody's shoes and everyone's eyes. That's all I need. The reason I'm telling you that is because what we're seeing in this verse is a large-scale misdirect. This is a misdirect. The enemy is trying to distract them and draw them away from their original purpose of building God's glory. Right? They're there to build the walls, not to make a city cool, but to define a people from the surrounding nations for the glory of God. That the rest of the world would look on and say, this is what a nation looks like when it is owned, purchased, dominated by a good benevolent king. This is what it looks like. So as they were building God's glory, the enemy would come via misdirect and try to get their attention away. Try to get them to think about self-preservation. Right? The enemy loves doing this, doesn't he? He loves taking our eyes off of building his glory and putting them right back on ourself. One thing I've learned in, in the ministry, and it's only been 14 years or so we've been in the ministry. I'm not some salt of the earth guy. But one thing I do know is when things start to heat up and accelerate, it starts, starts coming off the tracks. Right? You start feeling hemmed in and pressed from every direction. Whenever all of that happenings, and it seems like it's all happening at the same time, those are typically moments where the enemy is incredibly desperate and God is doing something very big. Typically. Typically. I used to hate those moments. Now whenever it starts happening, me and my wife know, we get very observant. We start looking. What's going on right now? There's a lot of attack. All of our kids are sick. The car just broke down. Two families just left the church. I'm getting hate email. Whatever. Something is about to happen. The enemy is desperate. Another thing I've learned is the higher you build the walls, the more ticked off the enemy gets. Right? The more glory you reflect. The more glory you bestow upon God before the world. The more your walls start to complete, the more aggressive he gets. I mean, the cross is just proof of this, isn't it? Think about it. I mean, it was the best the enemy had. It was the most aggressive thing the enemy could have done is to kill the God-man. To put him on the cross. To destroy Jesus Christ. Yet, yet, victory is in hand for you and me. Right? It was the apex of everything aggressive and hell-bound that could be thrown at the one who had done nothing. And yet, through all the fights, though it looked like it was all coming off the tracks, and from the outside looking in, it looked like a giant fail, didn't it? Yet victory was in hand. Given to you and me. So, just to recap this a little bit. I want to ask you, where is it that you're being attacked right now? Let me think about it. Some of you don't have to think that hard, do you? Where are you called to build? Where are you called to build? That's typically where you're going to find the attack. The last few weeks we've preached on, or we've looked at the word on how God, in His sovereign ability, has, he, he called Nehemiah to pray, called him to plan, called him to build, and now He's calling him to defend. Anything you're called to build, you're going to be called to defend. Okay? Where is it that that's happening? And where is it that you're failing? Where is the enemy getting through? Alright, we're going to try to put some skin on this here in a little bit. Those are the questions I want you keeping in the front of your mind, though, as we travel through this text. You see, Nehemiah was willing to risk everything for the glory of God. The glory of God is the centerpiece and the crown jewel of the whole book of Nehemiah. So, uh, several months ago when we went through the whole book of Colossians, right, from first to end, the theme of that book is Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's pinnacle above all. That was it. The theme of this is God is glorious before the world. That's the theme. 
And Nehemiah and the people around him were gripped by the reality of God's glory. And they were going to do whatever it took to display it before the world. It's a very beautiful thing. You know, we know that our task, you and me, is not to go to Jerusalem and build a wall, right? We're not all going to jump on a plane and go build a wall. That's not what this book is about. But it is about building the walls of the church, right? Which is a city on the hill. The church being a new type of Jerusalem, right? You've got to remember this. Nehemiah goes from Babylon to Jerusalem. Babylon is an old Babel. It's a new type of Babel. I guess you could say that. A nouveau Babel. Where all men did according to their own devices, their own good purpose, their own will. Nehemiah leaves that to go build a city according to God's good devices, His good purpose, and His good will. They stand in contrast to each other, right? The church is God's... We are God's people, collected, bound, so that the nations look in and see. But that's the thing. We're a city on a hill, displayed before all. And what do they see? Hopefully, as we do a good job of building the walls, they see a people restored by grace. Restored by grace. Each one of us, living stones, placed by God's good hand and His good choosing, with the cornerstone being none other than Jesus Christ Himself. It's beautiful. That's what God's doing. We're supposed to be about our Father's business, right? We're supposed to be about our Father's business, His great mission of recovering and restoring the world and all creation to Himself, right? We do, we do this, this thing of building walls. We do it for the sake of the world and for the glory of God. For the sake of the world and for the glory of God. So we have to defend, right? So what does this mean, Luke? How do you defend? Do you just get shotguns and razor wire and dig a moat and put war paint on and frown and get real serious, you know? No, the answer is no, we don't do that. Alright, just so you know, that's not what we do. But it does mean that there is a spiritual aggression against us. There is a very real attack. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, Christianity agrees that this universe is at war. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say he's landed in disguise even. And he is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That is what we're about. So we defend those places that we're building, that God has called us to build in. And attack will come. It will. But don't fret. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't be in anxiety. Don't be depressed because the victory has already been won. The victory has been won. So I'm going to jump into this text. I'm going to go through it in three chunks, and then we're done. In Nehemiah 4.15, I want to read off, and it says this. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who the man who sounded the trumpet was beside him, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. This is what I want you to catch. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. So what's going on in this text? The work is slowing down. 
right? They were at breakneck speed. But all the people from what you heard last week with Jeremy preaching, all the people were starting to come from outside of Jerusalem, the ones living in the outlying villages, coming saying, hey, I think there's going to be an attack. Hey, I think there's going to be an attack. So many times that it was putting them on guard over and over and over again. And Nehemiah said, enough. Enough, we're going to be ready at all times. How about that? We're not going to stop anymore. There's multiple threats coming in all the time. And the threats are getting more serious, too. It started with ridicule, didn't it? And it went to mockery. And now it's just flat out, we're coming with the horses. I mean, how much work can you really get done if you think the arrows are going to come flying over the hill at any moment, you know? You're just kind of working on the wall right in front of your own house. That's where they were working on it. And you're just kind of keeping an eye. I mean, you're just distracted the whole time. So he said, no. Fear of what could happen, isn't that a massive paralyzer? I mean, being afraid of what could happen to us, doesn't that freak us out? Doesn't it slow us down? The misdirect of what that is? The enemy, he loves to misdirect our eyes, just for a minute, away from God's glory and towards our own self-preservation. That's what he likes to do and he's very good at it. And we have an enemy. Just as Sambalat was Nehemiah's real enemy, let me tell you, we have a very, very real enemy. And he does not like the walls getting very high. Right? I think sometimes we can blow off the fact that there's a spiritual advancement against the church. I think sometimes we can write it off. And it's very easy to do it. We can look at all of our attacks as being very natural things and not very spiritual things. I, hey, I'm really bad at this too, okay? I'm not a, I've, I've said it publicly a million times. I'm not by nature a very mystical person, right? So it grounds me to where I really trust too much in what I see and I don't cash in enough on what is really going on in the unseen, right? So an attack from a person is just that. It's an attack from a person. And I always ignore the fact that there's something greater going on. And I don't know what it is. I think for some people it's a little bit of a reflex from growing up in a system where, I don't know, there's a spirit under every rock. And there's, you know, every headache has a spiritual reason behind it. And so some people are just kind of, ah, just an arm length away from that because they don't want to be that person. But then I think there's some people that are very, very deep in unbelief. They just struggle with the fact that there's anything spiritual at all. Right? I think I'm both, now that I read them out loud. (laughs) But Ephesians 6.12, it helps me in this. This is what it says. You've heard it before. You've heard it very often. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. I mean, hear hear the language in this. Cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whenever you struggle, do you ever think it could be a cosmic power? Ask yourself that. Do you think it could be, do you ever just go, this has got to be a cosmic power going on? I don't do it very often. In fact, I'll say I don't do it often enough. I don't do it often enough. John 10.10. It's the easy one to remember. Anytime you see digits repeated like that, it's always easy to time stamp them in your head a little bit. John 10.10 says this. For the enemy only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy only comes. He comes only, exclusively, to steal, kill, and destroy. Why do I pronounce that verse? Because I think me, sometimes us, we can grow up and and cartoon the enemy, can't we? Can he become real little and red all of a sudden with a pitchfork and a long tail? And he's just about ruining our day, isn't it? As he has this mischievous laugh and runs off. Isn't that how we look at the enemy? But do you understand he wants to steal your marriage? 
He wants to kill your dreams. He wants to destroy your life. Better yet, He wants you to destroy your life. He, he comes only, only to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's a very real thing. This is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says regarding this Nehemiah text. He says this, If they can destroy us, of course they will also destroy our work. They will do both if they can. The powers of evil are mad against the people of God. If they can in any way injure or annoy us, you may rest assured that they will do it. They will leave no stone unturned if it can serve their purpose. No arrows will be left in the quivers of hell where there are godly men and women at whom they can be aimed. And I hope you're hearing this. Satan and his allies aim our hearts, aim at our hearts every poison dart that they have. It's a very real thing, but you might ask yourself, as I'm reading this, as I'm reading the text, why on earth is the enemy so mad at us? Is it the fight between him and God? How do we get caught up in it? How do we get caught in the middle of this? Why is he so ticked at me? Why does he want to destroy me? Why does he want to steal from me? Some of you, you, many of you had girlfriends or boyfriends in middle school or high school, right? Pictures always taking of you and you end up breaking up with that person most often, most often, right? And then here it was years later, maybe even days later for some of us, we look at the picture and it's with us and all of our buds. And then that person, right? The one that did us wrong, man. That did, did me wrong. It ruined months of my life. That person stole weeks of my life. You know, we get so bitter and everything over this big broken relationship. So what do we do? We take a big marks a lot and we start marking that person out of the picture. Or cutting them out, don't we? As a, as a, as a sort of defiance. As a, as a sort of proxy humiliation on that person. Why do we do that? Because we're not going to go over to their house and marks a lot their face. Or you know what I'm saying? We're not going to do that. The next best thing we can do to defeating and destroying that person is destroying the image of them. Right? We battle the image of who that person is that we've declared war on. Now, that's what it is. You being created in God's image. You smell like God. The enemy has no ability to declare war successfully on the enemy. He can't, or on God. The enemy has no ability to take up arms and succeed against God. The next best thing are those whom God loves the most and who smell and look like Him, which is you. That's what warrants the attack. Does that make sense? That's why it comes. That's why it comes in waves. That's why it comes from every direction. That's why it comes. I fear some of you aren't defending what you've been called to build. I fear it because you can't see it coming. Because you might not notice that it's a cosmic issue going on. And so you're not properly defending. Yeah, you might be having all the right um, responses to that person giving you a hard hard problem. You might have all the right answers regarding that car that just broke down. But cosmically, spiritually, you're not praying anything. You're not even seeing the attack coming. There is no trumpet being blown in your corner. Right? That's my biggest fear. That's my biggest fear right now. You know... This is, well, I'll just keep going with the text. Verse 20. Just verse 20 and 20 alone. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. 
So this is the deal. What is this is what this means. They were all able to gather wherever the breach was. Remember, this wall was more than two and a half miles long, right, in circumference. And there was ten gates, over about 40-something, 40 45 construction projects going on scattered around this two and a half mile wall. So there's a lot of activity going on. But even with that many projects, they were spread out. So anytime there was a weak point, if an enemy was to come, blow the trumpet, everyone floods to that area. That's what's going on right there. What I like about this is because when attacks do come, whenever we feel alone, don't you get paralyzed even more? I mean, if I'm alone and I'm slapping mortar up there and I'm just going about my business brick after brick, stone after stone, all of a sudden an arrow comes whizzing by my head and I'm like, whoa, and I look up and I see horses bearing down on me and I look and I can't see anyone else on either side of the wall. Don't you think I'm more afraid than if I had 50, 100, 200 men armed around me? It matters. It matters. Some of you, you feel very alone whenever you're attacked. Some of you in your attack right now, so as soon as I say, are you being attacked right now, the things that come up in your mind, do you feel alone? Ask yourself, do you feel alone? Some of you, you do community and you still feel alone. Surrounded by people and you still feel alone. This is my community plug right now. Not my missional community plug, we do that every week. But just community in general. Just connecting with other lives in the kingdom in general. We don't like for other people to think that we're struggling. Whenever we're being attacked, we don't want people to know it. There is a sort of southern pride if I can take care of my own. Hey, I can take care of my own. I'm not going to burden that person. That's my burden. I'll fix my own stuff. That is anti-community. You're letting the enemy through. You're not sounding the trumpet. Sometimes community means blowing the dadgum trumpet. Okay? That's what it means. It means blow the trumpet. Bleed on each other. Connect. Burden each other. Do it. I, burden. Put, put your burdens on someone else. Listen, I know this is a lot to share with you, Wes, but I just got to tell you and lay it out there. Now, is it, is it going to burden him? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. And he'll be able to apply the gospel to me. We'll be doing community. Right? Attacks. Whenever you're alone, it's very difficult. And just because you're coming to a missional community... Just because you're doing things within community does not mean you are community. Does that make sense? You have to connect. You've got to burden each other. Go ahead and do it. I mean, I make jokes all the time about bleeders, you know. But when it comes down to it, I need someone to bleed to from time to time. I need to sound the trumpet. That's for sure. Now, with the trumpet being blown, the people were not to take great, 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 great confidence and just a lot of people flooding with, with swords and, and, and shields and coats of mail. Because it says this. It says, God will fight for us. That's the last part of that verse. Our God will fight for us. That's what they're supposed to take confidence in. Now this is what I would have asked. Had Nehemiah said this, and I'm one of the dudes holding the brick, and he, and he says that. I said, okay, God will fight for us. Why am I holding a sword? I mean, if God's going to do this, Nehemiah, why do I have a sword? I mean, we've all heard the Old Testament stories, Nehemiah, about, you know, the chariots getting stuck in mud from the foreign armies, or them all just fritzing out, turning on each other and hacking at each other, or, you know, the sound of angels as they're coming through the treetops. We've all heard those, Nehemiah. How come I've got a sword right now? The quick and the long of it is because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereignty is something we struggle with. 
God is sovereign and He is in control. That means that God, He possesses all power. He controls all things according to the counsel and the purpose of His own good will. Even if those things look like they contradict what His true purpose is. That's what sovereignty is. He's totally in control of everything. Of everything. Well, then why do I have a sword? You know, sovereignty, theologically, we might struggle with. Cerebrally, viscerally, you should fall in love with it. Learn to love the fact that God is very sovereign. It frees us from fear. Because God is in control. It frees us from it. Some of you, some of you really, really, really struggle with panic. Some of you struggle with fear. Some of you struggle with the unknown happening, anxiety. Some of you, you really are gripped by that. You need the doctrine of God's sovereignty to really just seep in and take over how you look at God. You know, the essence of fear, the essence, the backbone of fear, is feeling like everything is out of control. That you're not in control. That you're now a victim from this point on. Because you can't control what's going on around you, right? That's, that's why we're afraid. Someone flipped off the lights. I'm scared. I can't see. I'm out of control. I'm out of control. I can't see, right? I'm up high, heights. I'm out of control. All of control is lost. Sovereignty is that God is never out of control. Listen, God isn't even insecure. God isn't even worried. God's not up there cooking up a a plan B at any time. He's not up there looking at the situation and freaking out. He's never wrung his hands before. God never does that. Why? Because he knows what's about to happen. His sovereignty is supposed to lead us, not eclipse our works. Lead our works. You know, we struggle with this though. And so what we do is we kind of take sovereignty away from God. And as D.A. Carson says, that's when we start to de-God God. Right? We take sovereignty away. This is how we'll do it. We'll do it in one of two ways. Where we take true sovereignty away from God. We'll do it when we say, hey, if God is sovereign and He does everything, then I don't have to do anything. I won't do anything. If they're going to get saved, they're just going to get saved. Church is going to grow. It's going to grow. If the money's going to come, the money's going to come. And what we do is we just kind of blow off everything and we don't activate and do anything. That would be like one of these people not strapping on a sword. Right? The other fail, the other fail is when we say, God won't do anything, and so I must do everything. Right? That would be the person that straps on two swords and ignores everything that Nehemiah says and forgets everything that God has done. The win is, is we exhaust ourselves, we spend ourselves, and yes, God will be among us. He will fight in our midst. He will fight before us. He will fight for us, even. I don't understand how it all works. But I do know that sovereignty for me, especially when I pray, it leads me in confident action. Not intrepid action. Think about it. If God is not sovereign, then why do we even pray? I don't even want to pray to a God that's not sovereign. How does that work? I mean, go ahead and ask. He doesn't know what's going on any more than you do. He's just kind of up there waiting. I mean, God knows or He doesn't. He's God or He's not. Right? But our God is sovereign. So, you know, and and the beautiful thing about God's sovereignty that I really, really like is He does things despite us. Not just for us, but for us in our midst. He does things even despite us, regardless of us. You know, we planted this church not too long ago. And if, if me and Kevin and Chase got up and, and Wes and some of these guys from, from the very beginning and told you all the things that we did, you might be impressed with some of them. You might, that would be us swinging the sword really well. But if we told you everything that we did, you'd be like, oh my gosh, how are you guys still here? 
Are you kidding? Yes. God did this despite us. <laughs> God's sovereignty leads us. We've planted a few churches. From the outside looking in, you might be fooled and thinking that we know what we're doing. Let me tell you a little secret. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. Right? But God does and He's sovereign. He goes before us. Which has got to be encouraging to you. It was encouraging to Nehemiah's laborers, wasn't it? Remember last week we read and the week before there were some perfumers in there. Perfumers, that's what they did for a living. And now they're hucking bricks around and slapping mortar with a sword on. Okay, don't you think they were happy to hear that God will fight for them? I mean, those dudes are like, I'm a perfumer. I'm not even sure what that means, you know? Walls don't build themselves, but God is not asleep. Right? So, let me finish with this text. Verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took our clothes off and each kept his own weapon by his right hand. So what's going on right now? They doubled their shifts. Everyone that lived in an outlying village, they brought into the walls, right? Which doubles their manpower, right? That's pretty, pretty smart, actually. So he doubles his manpower, and they all don't take their clothes off. Which is every 10-year-old's dream, right? They slept in their clothes. Why? Because they're always aware. Always incredibly intentionally aware. Their head was on a swivel, right? Super aware. Not fearful, but aware. So, we are called to defend what we build and be very aware, right? To have our head on a swivel. What cosmic power is pressing in? Where is the misdirect happening? Where are my eyes being pulled off of God in order to preserve myself? Where is that happening? I came up with a few examples just to try to kind of actuate it a little bit. Um, This could be a million different things, and I just picked some bigs, okay? What about your family? We're all called to build our family, right? We're all called to build our family. In fact, we're, we're called to build our family according to the glory of God. To give God the glory so that the world looks in at our family. They say, God owns this family. You can tell. This is what it looks like when God totally possesses and loves and moves through a family. That is what we're supposed to do. That's how we're supposed to do it. But what does an attack look like? Where does the misdirect come? Think about it. Cosmically. Think about it. For you, it might be different. But for me, if I was to be totally honest, I'd have to say it's laziness. Laziness, lack of intentionality, right? Because I'm tired. Most of you men, since it is Father's Day, I'll just aim at you a little bit more than maybe the ladies. But I'm sure the ladies, if you're married, you'll, you'll understand maybe. We come home as men and we're tired. Uh, there's a lot going on up here. A lot of burdens. I'll tell you as a pastor, I just take burden after burden after burden. And there's a lot of contact with people a lot. So my threshold isn't as high as some men. I come home. I don't want to deal with people anymore. I want to retreat and gain peace. I want to gain relaxation. Right? And so what I do is instead of retreating to the Creator, I retreat to creation. I'll do whatever it takes to feel peace. And I won't even... So what does this mean? It means... uh, So my kids are messing up. I might punish or rebuke rather than instruct. That's lazy. Right? I might enjoy my wife without leading and investing in my wife. You see how this works? Taking the easy way out. Always always pulling the ripcord when it gets difficult. 
Always taking the easy exit. The misdirect is the enemy saying in my ear, Luke, you deserve to rest. You deserve it. Doing this thing, whether it's Netflix or whatever, or just staring at the wall. It could be anything. Working out, whatever. Luke, this is what will truly give you peace. This is what will really make you feel free. And you deserve it. And you're tired and your family should get that. Right? That's the misdirect. The gospel stands in contradiction. And it says that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was He won and purchased us total rest. Total rest. We are living in the new Sabbath. Total rest. What that means is is we can find and rehearse total peace at any time. At any time. We don't have to recreate it. Christ did this. Christ would retreat and go into devotion. And I know what some of you are thinking, the same thing I do, but Luke, that is just as much work sometimes. Luke, that is just as much work to press in and pray and read. Gosh, I'm too tired to even read, right? You know, he won us from that. He won us. He defeated that lazy retreat on the cross. He did. There is grace. Ask yourself how many times you beg God for the grace to invest, not just tolerate your family, but invest in your family and press deep. Ask ask yourself, will God give me the grace to enjoy and be replenished when I do this? I'm learning now. Years in the past, I would leave to go to work and I would ask God to fill me with the power of His Holy Spirit that I might preach well, counsel well, build well, build structure well, that I might do that well. Now I'm finding that ten times more, I need to go home and on the way home, pray and go, God, I need you to fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit to be father, to be husband. Right? To be dad and coach and to be lover, best friend. God, I need your Holy Spirit for that. Right? I'm tired of the enemy getting through. What about your... What about community? We talked about community a little bit. We're supposed to build community to the glory of God as we build this wall. That the world looks in and sees how we do community, and they're struck by how different it stands in contrast, right? But where does the misdirect come? Where does the enemy come and try to slip through, right? As we don't blow the trumpet. For me, I'll tell you, not just me personally, but experience I've had, is pride. A lot of it's pride. Hey, I am dealing with stuff, but it's a little above your pay grade, you know what I mean? You wouldn't understand what I'm going through. I'm a little too mature, for you to understand my problems. And if I really tell you what's going on, you'll judge me. Right? So pride. Pride is how it... But what is? what does the gospel say in contradiction? Think about it. He defeated that idol of approval and self-worth. I mean, I, I, we do, a lot of guys especially desperately want to be approved of. I feel most worthy and self-valuable when I feel approved of. And so we will do anything to fight for that reputation. But Christ died so that we don't even have to guard that reputation anymore because we're buried in a new identity. He performed because we couldn't. His reputation is sterling because ours was sleazy. Do you see how that works? That's what the gospel says. You've got to preach it to yourself. You better believe it. Or that enemy will keep slipping right on by. Right? Every time I guard and protect my own reputation is a time where I stop believing the gospel. That's a fact. What about your work? You're supposed to be building on that part of the wall so that the rest of the workforce looks in and says, that person is owned by a passionate king. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. But what is the cosmic interference? Where does the misdirect come? What does that look like? I'll tell you, from my standpoint, from looking in, right, 
from the outside, it's going to be easy for you guys to look and go, well, Luke has a spiritual job. He has a spiritual job because he's a pastor, but mine's a secular job. And so we make a divide. All I'm going to do is clock in and clock out because my job really doesn't have that much of an eternal significance when it all comes down to it, right? But you see where that subtle lie, that subtle lie allows you to lay down the guard and be a self-preserver even in your workplace, right? Don't we do that? It's all about dog-eat-dog. It's all about preserving my own reputation, cranking up my own numbers, glossing my own self, right? So that I can come out on top. That's what happens. Because we don't see it as very sacred. But we talked about two weeks ago about how Jesus never saw his life like that. The first 30 years of his life were just as sacred and spiritual as the last four. Of course, we see it just littered with miracles and people coming back to life and all this great stuff. But the first 30 years of his life was no less to the glory of God. It was no less to the glory of God. He didn't understand this spiritual, secular divide like we do. It didn't exist for him. He died on the cross to defeat, to defeat us being enslaved to always making a name for ourselves. That's what he did. There's a few more. I'm going to skip a few, but I do want to jump to gospel. Your gospel understanding. That's a part of the gate you're supposed to be building. How you understand the grand story of a Jesus Christ coming, living through a virgin, coming, living perfectly, dying perfectly, and living again perfectly. How do you see that and how do you employ it in your own life? You're supposed to be doing it better than everybody else. Everybody has an opinion on Jesus, for crying out loud. Everybody. Every talk show in the world, every article, everyone's got an opinion on who Jesus is. But what is your opinion about who Jesus was, who He is, what He did, right? What does the attack look like for us? Where is the cosmic push? For us, I think it's legalism. We are still, believe me, me, we are still tempted to believe that the gospel will win us to the Lord and then it's up to us to polish ourselves and clean after that. It's up to us to do all the work after that. We better perform, behave, polish, scrub, and get ourselves clean because He did so much work for us. Right? What we're really doing is we're saying the cross wasn't good enough. So I have to add to it. Now it's Jesus plus something. So we treat the gospel like it's those rocket boosters on the shuttle that kind of fall off after a while. And then the the rocket's by itself, the shuttle's by itself. We treat the gospel like those rocket boosters. No much need for them anymore. I'm out of orbit. Right? So the misdirect, the lie in our ears is that, hey, God saved you, but you need to improve your behavior. I mean, now let's listen. Now that you're saved, there's a lot of things you need to start doing, right? If you really want His love and you really want His blessing and you really want His approval, well, then grace is good, but it's not really that good. You still have a lot of bench pressing to do. It's lacking, right? You need to clean yourself up. But the gospel says this, Jesus rescued you despite you. Grace to you is His love to you despite your best and your worst efforts. Right? On your worst day, Jesus has merited your rescue. On your worst day. On your best day, Jesus merited your rescue. He's the one that did it. There's nothing to polish. Nothing to prove. Nothing to work for. But Luke, you still have to do things. Luke, you still have to do things. I'm about to shock some of you. No, you don't. No, you don't. You get to, but you don't have to. You get to celebrate and image what Christ has done, but you don't have to. Listen, if you are a a one born-again son of the king, 
If you never prayed again until the day you died, does that keep you from going to heaven? The answer is no. You don't have to do anything. I know that's shocking to you. That's going to irritate some of you, but listen to me. You don't have to add anything to the cross. You are one. But Luke, then then why do we pray? Why do we do all of those things? Why do we even show up to church? Why community? Community is hard. You know, it's sloppy. People tick me off. Why do all of that stuff? Because you get to. You get to celebrate what was done for you. God was in community with Himself. He came into the world to be on mission. He worked for us. Do you you see? We are imaging. Our whole lives are to image and echo and smell like and point to what Jesus Christ did for us. Understanding and fully getting your arms around the gospel is being able to see and even do great works for God through that lens. It's hard. We act, we exhaust, we spend our lives not towards Jesus Christ, but from Jesus Christ. We don't do things to get, we do things because we've gotten. We don't perform because He ultimately performed for us. I can't say this stuff enough, but are you defending this? Are you defending this? Are you just kind of hearing it? Listen, I'm chief. I read the books and I go, yeah, that's really good. And then the next time I get a chance to perform, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show God. I'm going to show God that even though His grace was good, I was worth it. I was worth it. You know, I'm, hey, I know it's a pretty big deal you did for me, Jesus, but I'm a pretty, pretty good catch if you think about it. I'm going to show you right now. This works. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, The purpose of the Christian church is not to function as a chaplaincy for those who are barely hanging on to their faith. It is not intended to act as a safe house where we gather to clean off the filth from the world around us. The Christian community is not to be seen primarily as a support group where we receive inspiration and affirmation for living our individual lives. Though the community may provide all of these personal blessings and more. This is what he says. The Christian community is intended to reflect a new way of being human to this world. We're here to build a wall. We're here to build a wall and and look like a collected people restored by grace. That's what we're here for. We're here to demonstrate that we are purchased, that we're changed, that we're representational. But this is the deal. Attack's going to be waiting, is it not? Attack's going to be there. How are some of you weathering these attacks alone? Some of you, man, how do you do it? You've been going at it alone. There might be one other person on earth that knows what you're going through. How do you do this? Did you know that Jesus fought alone, died alone on the cross so you wouldn't have to do this? Do you understand by what He did on the cross, He bought you community? Community came at a price. He bought it for you. On the cross, He did this. He was abandoned. His closest followers left. And there was even at one point where He said, Father, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? He did something incredibly scandalous and passionately alone so that you would never have to experience that. He purchased community for you. Some of you, you're not defending the wall very well. You're not. My submission to you is that you cry out for God's grace. Right? Why? Luke, that's a weird thing to ask for. Grace. Why would I ask for grace if I'm not defending these things well? Because if you don't have grace doing it through you, you just have legalism and works. You're just going to walk out of here and try to change your behavior first and deal with your heart second. You have to deal with your heart first that your behavior might change. Right? That's what we're talking about. So ask for grace, because God will give you grace. Sometimes to be wise with what's going on at the wall. Sometimes it's to be courageous. Sometimes it's to um, enjoy. Sometimes it's just to endure. 
The grace will look differently in different ways. But if you beg God for grace and you repent from your own sin of even trying to do it on yourself, you see, we don't just repent for our sin, we repent from our self-righteousness, trying to self-cleanse and self-atone. If you ask for God's grace and He does it through you, that's the opposite of legalism. Some of you, you don't pray for God's grace very much. You don't say, God, do something through me, even though I don't deserve it, and it's totally despite me and outside of me and totally beyond me. <laughs> we don't do that. We, just, we expect God to work with the basic faculties of what we have. Do you understand He'll go beyond that? you understand He'll go beyond that? He'll go beyond how smart you are? Some of you are really smart. Do you know He'll go beyond that? Some of you are very courageous. I know some of you guys are ladies too are very courageous. You know God will go beyond that? But you need grace to do it. No book's going to get you there, right? So, some of you disregard the spiritual enemy totally who hates us. Let me tell you, that's an atheistic posture. All right? It's an atheistic posture. To believe that there's a God who loves us and not an enemy who hates us, it's just kind of strange. <laughs> it's just strange. It's goofy. It doesn't work. Theologically, it doesn't work. Logically, just simply logically, it doesn't work. It's very self-destructive. Jesus did something towards our enemy that he could hand you a victory. Right? And then some of you, and then I'm done with this. Some, in fact, the team can come back up. Some of you are outside the wall totally. You're just outside the wall. So you're watching these people build a wall. You're seeing a collected people of grace, a nation, a priesthood, a family, a connected people. Thanks. I didn't even use that. You're seeing this, and you're looking from the outside looking in. Let me tell you, all of your remedies to your own little holes in the wall are failures. All of them are failures. Your escapes, they bring no lasting peace. Your community is shallow. Your hope, it slips away. Your work is dog-eat-dog. Your marriage is just enjoy until something goes off the tracks. Your view of salvation is the sweat of your own brow. They're failures. These are all failures. These are all failures. My appeal to you, if this is you, and listen, some of you, some of you, you've always wondered if you are a Christian, because this is who I'm talking to. Some of you know for a fact you are not. Let me tell you, there's nothing your remedies can do. These are spiritual problems at a core level. right? They had to be purchased by blood. My appeal to you is to abandon yourself. I said last week um, in Chattanooga that, that our, the Christian lifestyle is an evacuating lifestyle. It's a self-evacuating, self-abandoning lifestyle. That is what you're being called to, not just perform better. That might have been what you grew up hearing, that the gospel is about performing better. It's about being turned into an entirely new person, right? A receptacle of God's grace. That is what I'm asking you to do. You should do it today. You shouldn't put it off one more minute. We have people waiting in the back that will pray with you, that will talk with you, work you through it, deal with any question that you have, but please don't leave today until that happens. If any of you, listen, in fact, we can all go ahead and stand up. I'm going to go straight into worship. As we worship, some of you know this, some of you don't, we have communion over here. Um, we, just, we encourage you to take it as families, take it as roommates. You can take it alone if you're here alone. Um, but this, this for us is what we take as a church. Um, it's reserved for God's people. It's basically, it's a visual demonstration of a broken body and spilt blood. It's a celebration, a visual celebration of what God has done for us. So take it in remembrance of what He has done for us. Pray it over your family. Do it at any time in these songs that go up. Just feel free to walk over there at any time and take communion. 
Also, if you need someone to talk to, we will be in the back for a while. Just come back and talk to us. Don't be afraid. Okay? I promise. I might seem really intense right now. I'm really not that intense. And the guys back there with me, we all love you. Okay? So, let me pray with you.